All right, so we are, we're starting a brand new series today, and the series we're starting is called The Greatest Chapter Ever Written. And, uh, you know, if you are allowed to have a favorite chapter in the Bible, um, I would say that for me, by far, my favorite chapter is Romans chapter 8. And so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And it's, it's a beautiful chapter. It's a, it's a majestic chapter. It begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. And uh, just beautiful all the way through. And so we're going to look at it and see what God might have to say to us out of this chapter. And I want you, I want you to know I'm not the only one who uh, thought Romans 8 was their favorite chapter. So uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, and James Boyce, I was reading their commentaries this past week. They both wrote, you know, multi-volume commentaries on the book of Romans. They both said that Romans 8 was their favorite chapter. Johann, Johann Sebastian Bach uh, loved Romans 8 so much that he wrote an entire cantata based on this one chapter. And it was uh, N.T. Wright who said this about Romans 8. He said, Romans 8 is a feast of biblical themes that carries the power of the gospel in every breath. If the church could hoist its sails and catch this wind, there is no knowing what might happen. And so uh, N.T. Wright says Romans 8 is like the gospel in one breath. And he says if the church could just hoist its sails and catch the wind of this chapter, there's no telling what God might do. And so uh, that's what we're going to do for the next uh, three weeks. We're going to uh, ca- try to catch the wind of Romans 8. We're going to see what God will do in our church, in our lives, as we get into the message of this chapter. And so uh, the, the book of, or the, the chap- chapter 8 of Romans can be broken into three different parts. So uh, verses 1 through 17 uh, concerns life in the Spirit. And then uh, the second section, verses 18 through 27, concerns the future glory, not only of the children of God, but of all creation. And then uh, the, the third section, 8, 28 through 39, concerns the steadfast love of God for his children. And so for the next three, three weeks, we're just going to break uh, apart each one of those sections and look in depth at what they have to say. And so this week, uh, we're looking at life in the Spirit, looking at life in the Spirit. And really, uh, this, there's no uh, better day to look at this particular section than today, because uh, today is a, a day where we had a baptism. And, uh, you know, the bap- uh, what is baptism? Baptism is a symbol of someone coming to new life in the Spirit. And so, uh, you know, as Danny, you know, you got into the, the water here, and we dunk, dunked you down into the water, and, uh, and then we, we held you down for a little bit there, not too long, and then we, we, we lifted you out again, and what did we say? We said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then the very last phrase I said to Danny was, raised in newness of life. And that's the message of baptism, is that we are, as, as a Christian, uh, your old life has died, your old life, life has been buried, and now as a Christian, you are raised in newness of life. We, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, and old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You are living a new life. You are raised in newness of life. But Danny says, okay, uh, that's great, but, but, but what does this life look like? I'm raised in newness of life. What does life in the Spirit look like? What does it mean to walk in newness of life? Well, uh, Romans chapter 8, this is precisely a a picture of what it means to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 8 is a picture of the new life that you have in Jesus. It's 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 
It's a very vivid picture of what it means to walk uh, in life, a life in the Spirit. So we're going to go through it here. And uh, I want you to notice here before we get into it how many times the word Spirit is mentioned. And so uh, 14 times in 17 verses, the word Spirit is mentioned. And so the new life that we have in Jesus is a life in the Spirit. It's a life that is empowered by the Spirit, sustained, animated, and controlled by the Spirit. In Romans chapter one, chapters 1 through 7, the word spirit was only mentioned twice. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, it's all over the place. So this, this new life, it, it is a life lived in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Spirit. And secondly, I want you to see that, it, that it's a, a life that breaks from the past. Uh, many commentators have noticed that uh, Romans chapter 7 and Roman cha- Romans chapter 8 are just, it's a major transition in, in this book. And they couldn't be more different. So Romans chapter 7 is Paul, the author, and, he sh- and it's, it's a chapter full of despair. He's struggling with sin. He's, uh, he says, who will de- deliver, me, deliver me from this body of death? And then Romans chapter 8, he's been delivered. And it begins with no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this is a, this is a picture of a life that is a break from the old life. It is new life as opposed to uh, what was buried in the waters of baptism. Old things are gone, and this is all the new things that are present in life in the Spirit. So today I want us to see three things about this new life that we've been given. Uh, Number one, we're going to see it's a life where there is no more condemnation. Uh, Second of all, we're going to see it's a life where there's no more subjugation or slavery. And then finally, we're going to see it's a life where there's no more alienation. Three things about your new life, Danny, today. And for all of us. First, it's a life of no more condemnation. So uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins the chapter by, by saying that there is now therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation? Well, condemnation is a forensic legal term. It's a term of the courtroom. And in a court of law, uh, you're either declared guilty or not guilty, right? You're standing before the bench. They, they either, the judge either declares you guilty or not guilty. You're either acquitted and you go free or you're condemned and you go to punishment. And what Paul is saying here is that before the bench of God, before the cosmic bench, before the court of appeals that matters most, you have been acquitted. Part of the new life that we have in Jesus is that we live in a space where there is no more condemnation before God. We've been acquitted. We've been completely cleared before the court of appeals that matters most. And this is a very strong statement. And so if you're a Christian, there's no more condemnation. And, and Paul says this emphatically. And so in the Greek, the word no uh, is the word ooh. Can we all say ooh? Ooh. And if you wanted to say no emphatically, you would say ude. Can we all say ude? And in this verse, the word no condemnation is the word ode or ude. It's a strong no. There will never be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The no is first in the sentence, which even puts more emphasis on it. And Paul is saying, there is not now, nor will there ever be even a hint of condemnation for you if you're in the Spirit, if you're a Christian. Why is there no more condemnation, though? 
Well, notice Paul goes on and he says, there is no more condemnation, not now, not ever, for or because, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For, he says in verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's a mouthful, but it tells us why there's no condemnation. And the reason why there's no condemnation is not because of anything you've done. It's not because you're innocent. You know, there's either two ways to be acquitted in a court of law. Uh, either because, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're innocent, that's one way. And there's a lot of people that when it comes before the bench of God, they really do think that they're innocent. I remember uh, doing street evangelism in Dallas uh, a few years back, and we would go out to people on the street, and we'd say, um, if you died tonight, and you were standing before the bench of God, uh, and he asked you, why should I let you in, what would you tell God? I'm not, I'm not terribly happy with the question because it's all about, you know, when you die. And Christianity is about way more than when you die. But it gets at a, very, it gets at a certain uh, question, doesn't it? What, what clears me before the bench of God? Why should God vindicate me? Why should there be no condemnation for me? What many people said is because I've been a good person. You know, I've lived, I've, I'm an American, and I've lived a good life, you know, I've never hurt anybody, never killed anybody, um, you know, m- m- mistakes were made, of course, always mistakes were made, but God is going to accept me because I've basically been a good person. Now, notice this is not what Paul says here. He doesn't say that you're acquitted because of something you've done because you've lived a good life. And I think for many people, uh, even thinking about their own life, if they're honest, would, would, would admit that they haven't really lived a life that could be completely cleared by God himself. You know, most of us will admit if we're looking at our past and our lives without spin, without selective memory, we'd admit that our lives have been pretty broken. I love this little uh, strip by, uh, this is a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, and he talks about, you know, his own uh, sin, and here, here's what Calvin says. He says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, are you worried that you might not have been good? And Calvin responds, that's the question, isn't it? It's all relative. What's Santa's definition anyway? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I haven't started any wars. Wouldn't you say that that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should probably get lots of presents? Hobbes wisely responds, but maybe good is more than simply the absence of bad. To which Calvin responds, see, that, that, that's what worries me. You see, that's the worry. Have I lived a life that could be acquitted? How do I know there's no condemnation for me? How do I know that I've lived such that God could let me in and, and I will pass the the judgment at the end. Well, well, Paul says, listen, there is no condemnation, not because of what you do, not because of your spiritual resume or the life you've lived. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned, for, for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. And what he's saying there is that there's no condemnation for you 
because Jesus Christ took that condemnation for you. In other words, Jesus Christ took the fire of God's judgment. He t- all of God's judgment, all of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus so that if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no more judgment for you. That judgment has already been poured out. It's already been exhausted, and now you stand in a place where there is not now and will, there will not ever be any condemnation. We stand in God's yes if we're Christians. And I remember the, the old Seinfeld F episode where there is a soup Nazi, and you get up to the front of the line, and it's no soup for you. And a lot of people think it's, there's no ble- God says there's no blessing for you. No to you. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, there is a yes for you. You are in Christ Jesus. You are standing in a place where there is no more condemnation. There's an old story that illustrates this. There's a, a man and his boy, they're in the woods, and the woods are on fire, and the fire is getting closer and closer to the man and his poor boy. And the man pulls out his lighter fluid, they were camping, and with the lighter fluid, he, he makes a big circle in the woods. And then he lights the circle on fire, and it burns all around them. And then him and his son stand in the middle of the circle. And as the fire gets closer, the the little boy begins to panic. Oh, no, the fire is getting closer. And the father looks at the son and says, Son, don't worry. The fire doesn't burn where it's already burned. And the fire of God's judgment has already burned on Jesus. And there is no more judgment for you. You stand within the circle. You are in Christ. And so you are free from that judgment. And I wonder if you live like that. You know, a lot of us are still punishing ourselves for sins that we did 10 years ago, maybe 10 weeks ago, maybe 10 hours ago. You know, you're working your way back into God's good graces. And Paul says, no. If you're a Christian, there is no more condemnation. It is God's yes for you. And this is the space where you live. And so Paul says the the new life you've been given is a place where there's no more condemnation. It is all forgiveness. It is all acquittal. There is no more judgment. And right now as you sit in the seat today, you don't have to have a question mark about whether you're going to pass the judgment on the last day. The judgment has already passed for you and you are now free. Second of all, this life that we have is a life not only of no more condemnation, but also a life of no more subjugation. And by subjugation, I mean it's a life where there is no more slavery. Because somebody says, I'm so happy that, I'm, that there's no more condemnation. Uh, I am free from the penalty of, of judgment or the penalty for my sin. But I think most of us want more than that, don't we? Most of us, you know, we want more than just acquittal and forgiveness. We actually want to actually not have to sin anymore. You know, we want our lives to change. We want to be able to treat our spouses better. We want to be able to love our kids uh, the way we should. We want to be able to overcome those addictive patterns that we've been enslaved to. And and for many of us, yeah, that's great that we've been forgiven, and and that's great that there's no more condemnation, but we, we want to be more than just free from the penalty of sin. We want to be free from the power of sin. And that's exactly what Paul says here, is that in Christ, this new life, that, you have given, there's, that you've been given, there's no more subjugation. You are free not only from the penalty, but the power of sin. Notice what he says. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, Paul is getting here to something very, very important in Scripture, and it is the definition of of sin. You see, according to the Bible, uh, sin is not just something that you do. Sin is not just a choice that you make. Sin is a dominion that you're under, right? You don't just do sin, but sin does you. Uh, Sin is more than just a choice you make. It's a dominion that you're living in. And so the the Bible understands the pre-Christian life is a life where we are in bondage to something called the flesh. And the flesh is your old sinful nature. This is the you that was buried in the waters of baptism. And it, it, was, it was your life under the, you know, the dominion and the slavery of sin. So when you think about sin, think more than choice. Think of uh, dominion. Think about sin as a tyrant like Hitler or Mussolini. And when you become a Christian, what, what the Bible said, what Scripture says, what Paul says, is that you're taken out of the dominion of your flesh, and you're put under another dominion, which is the dominion of the Spirit. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about indwelling sin, right? Sin is dwelling inside of me. And Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the Spirit dwelling inside of you. And so for the Christian, the Spirit occupies the space where sin used to occupy, right? You are now indwelt by the Spirit, and so we are no longer in bondage to sin. And this is really good news because I think most of us, when, when we think about sin, we could acknowledge the fact that it is sort of a slavery, isn't it? And I love the way Paul here, he talks about how the fleshly mind uh, sets its mind on things of the flesh, which leads to death. And there almost is like kind of neuropathways that are etched in our, our brains through the behaviors and the thoughts that we practice. Right, you develop ha- habits and practices uh, all around your sinful nature, so that things like lust and 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 things like greed or anger, these things begin to become easier and easier for us to do until we're actually in bondage to those things. You know, you you may uh, you know log on to an internet website. And it's a choice to do that, but the more and more you do that, you find out that you've etched pathways in your brain that are very hard to get out of. You know, or maybe anger, you may blow up your, up your spouse, but there's, you know, there's a, anger can get its grip on you. And it be, can become a pattern and a habit in your life. And we can understand that there is a power of sin that we're under. In each one of us, there's a dark mass of self-absorption and self-centeredness and self-concentration. And it's far worse than any of us want to admit. And it makes us capable of enormous evil. And Paul says here that we're actually captives to that. In Romans 7, Paul talks about himself and he says, the things that I want to do, I end up not doing those things. And the things that I, I do, the very things that I that I don't want to do. He says, listen, I'm almost a captive to my own worst self. 
And I, and I try and I try and I try, but I just seem to, like a car out of alignment, I veer back into my worst self. I veer back into my selfishness. And I become a slave to my sin. But Paul says here in verse 9, but you, however, are not in the flesh anymore. You're no longer under that dominion. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And, and get what Paul says here. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says, get this, you are no longer a slave to sin. In fact, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. You are alive now. You are free from that captivity. You are no longer in bondage to your own worst self. You are now free to live the life that God has called you to live. Uh, my, my, um, Anita's parents, my, my kids' grandparents, they gave our kids these little 4th of July t-shirts that in red, white, and blue letters it says, free to be. So cute seeing the little kids running around with free to be on their, their shirt. And sometimes I wish they weren't so free to be. But in Christ Jesus, you are free to be. You are no longer a debtor. You are no longer in bondage to that old flesh, that old sinful nature. You are free to live the life you were created for. You see, Christianity is not cleaning up the old self. It is death and resurrection, raised in newness of life. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. And it will give you power and vitality to live the life that God has called you to live. And so Paul says, so then, brothers, we are not debtors to live according to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the Spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so Paul says, live into that freedom that you have. You're no longer a debtor to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. So when lust comes to you and says, serve me or die, you look at lust and you say, you're dead to me. You don't own me anymore. I am free to be the person God's called me to be. When greed comes to you and says, serve me or die, you must live for me. You look at greed and you say, I'm, you're dead to me. You know, I don't have to serve you anymore. When anger rears its ugly head, that old tyrant, what Paul says is, he says, you can look at that sin and say, you're dead to me. I'm not in debt to you. I am free to live the life that God has called me to live. And so Paul here, he says, life in the spirit. First, there's no condemnation. You're acquitted. You're free. No more judgment, ever. Not now, not ever. Number two, no more subjugation. The old self, the power of the old life has been crucified. It's been buried in the waters of baptism. And now you are free to live the life that God has called you to live. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in you. Number three, there's no more alienation. And so Paul continues his argument here in verse 14. For he says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as, adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. So Paul ends his argument by saying, now there's no more alienation. Before you were a Christian, uh, Ephesians says that you are without hope, without God in the world. You were separated from the life of your creator. You were at the mercy of random circumstance. You were outside of the joy and relationship of your creator. But here he says, through the Spirit, this new life that you've been given, you've been adopted, he says. The Spirit of God has, has given you the spirit of adoption. You are now sons and daughters of God. And then he goes on to say, and he, to say that when we come to God, we now cry out to him, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba there is a fascinating word. It's an Aramaic word, and it means Daddy. And the only person in the scripture ever to use the word Abba is Jesus Christ himself, which was, uh, you know, for, for most Jews, that, that would have been astounding to hear somebody call the creator of the wor- world Daddy. But Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Prayer, calls Father his Father Daddy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he calls God Abba. But here what it says is that by the Spirit, this new life that we've been given, we can now cry out to God, and we, just like Jesus, can call God Abba. The word Abba, it's not just an Aramaic word, it's sort of like a universal word, word, isn't it? You know, you think about a little tiny baby and the first time they call their, their father daddy, it's like they're just using the syllables that they know, the syllables that don't require teeth. Papa. Mama. They're reaching out with those simple syllables and it's this cry of, of dependence. And what Paul is saying here is that now that you're a Christian, this is your new identity. You now look to God and you call him Abba, Father. And it's an incredibly close relationship. It's a relationship of identity. It's a relationship that banishes fear, notice, from your life. You know, when you're in this relationship with God as your father, you know, what do you have to be afraid of? You're in the arms of the God who created you. You're in the arms of the one who loves you the most. And Paul says that you don't have to shrink back into fear. You have this new identity in Jesus Christ where God is your father. Uh, you know, all, all parents probably have, have had the experience where Maybe you've got a child and they're in sort of a scary situation, maybe at the beach where their waves are coming and crashing all around them, and the child is terrified, and so, you, you know, the, you, you go down there as the parent, and you pick them up, and they're almost shaking. Have you had that experience? The child is tense and shaking, and then when you put them in your arms, the child almost just relaxes in the arms of their father. And, and Paul is saying, through the Spirit, this new life that you've been given, you have a new identity, a new identity that banishes fear that no matter what happens in your life, you are safe in the arms of your Father. And Paul is almost saying, wake up to this identity. You're living life in the Spirit. Discover who you are because this makes all the difference. Uh, one of my friends, Rankin Wilburn, has this great little <laughs> scenario that he imagines to describe uh, waking up to discover you're, you're a son or daughter of God. He, he says this, All of us at one time or another have wondered if we were switched at birth. Are these really my parents? Now imagine that your parents were mean and critical, that you you were always a disappointment to them and they were always sure to point that out to you. Some of you, that might have been the situation. 
But then one day, one rainy, drizzly day, sifting through old papers that had been locked in the dusty footlocker in the attic, you discover that you had been abducted. These are not your parents. After all, they're criminals. You discover that your real mom, your real mom is an artist in the Sorbonne in Paris. And then you discover that your real dad, your, your, your real birth dad is a, base, a professional baseball player and a Nobel scientist. You think to yourself, this explains everything. What I'd always thought about myself, but no one has ever acknowledged. I'm really a hidden genius. And then he says, such a discovery would cause you to reinterpret everything you knew about life. Who you are, where you came from, your destiny. After that day, you'd never be the same. And here's the thing. You have a true identity. You have a real father. Some of you may have had poor fathers, ones that were absent, or even worse, ones that were abusive. But this new life that you've been given is a life where you can call the creator of the universe father. And Paul says, make this discovery. Understand who you are. It'll change everything. When you understand that, that God is your Abba, that God is your father, people could criticize you and it just kind of bounces off because you know who you are. You're a child of God. You are beloved by the creator of the universe. You have the spirit of adoption. And so Paul says, Here, here's your new life in Jesus. The old life is gone. You've been raised in newness of life. It's a life of no more condemnation. It's a life of no more subjugation. Don't let sin rule in you anymore. And it's a life of no more alienation. So here's how I want to apply this just in the next couple seconds here. I want you to ask yourself with real honesty and candor, what do I know about this life? You know, these are a lot of indicatives where Paul is saying this is true if you're a Christian. No more condemnation. No more subjugation. No more alienation. Do you believe that? Do you live like that's true? And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Here's three commands at the very end, okay? Go and do this. I want you to accept your acquittal. I want you to accept the fact that there is no more condemnation for you. And it doesn't matter what happened 10 years ago or 10 months ago or 10 weeks ago. There is no more judgment. You're free. Accept that. I want, you, I want to encourage you to seize your freedom. You know, whatever, you know, thinking your, what is the sin that you struggle with? What is the thing that you battle with? I want you to seize your freedom from that sin. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. You are free. You do not have to obey that old master. There is new life for you. Number three, I want you to embrace your identity. You're a child of God. You are, you are in the arms of your heavenly father. Your new identity is that you are his child. Nothing can touch you. I want you to embrace that identity and live out of that identity. Live as if you were raised in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this description of life in the spirit. And God, we pray that you would give us your power and your
awareness and, and everything we need to live into this new life. Lord, for those in bondage to sins, we pray that you would free them this morning. God, with the, those who are struggling with, with secret sins and addictions, God, that you would give them strength, Lord, to say no to that old master. For those of us who struggle with identity that uh, we're always trying to achieve and prove people that we're worthy and worth it, God, help us to know that we are your sons and daughters. Lord, help us to know that there is no more condemnation for us. Lord, help us to live life in the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.